I think we're going to find that in like another five or 10 years, we're going to get a note from Nick uh-huh. <laughs> with some demands. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. so, Chris Gale, I want the following. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the only public health and medical journal club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by bears. Bears? So, bears. Chicago so, bears? You no. mean like the, the aspirin manufacturer? No, so- I'm talking about I go away for six months and there is a bear that is wandering oh, yeah, around I saw that. my hometown of Arlington. Was oh, that yeah. close to your house? It was no, up in a tree. It was, it was the other side of town. But, I mean, we live not in the city, but we live in a city. Yeah. How is it we have bears wandering around? I don't know if you recall, but there was a, there was a similar fascinating story of this bear that had wandered down from New Hampshire, presumably, and had um, uh, found its way through the western suburbs and then had gotten all the way down to the, I guess, the Sagamore Bridge, crossed over the Sagamore Bridge and walked no. along all the way to the end of Cape Cod until he finally got to Provincetown, where he was nabbed and put into a cage and transported back to New Hampshire. <laughs> he was back two weeks later in Provincetown. <laughs> looking for ta- looking for taffy. <laughs> looking for saltwater taffy. taffy. Right. That's and there was a bear that was on a tree hanging over the Massachusetts Turnpike too. Really? Yeah. Wow. They had, they had, yeah, that was several years ago. Oh, they had amazing. to actually sedate it and get it and, and drag it off so it wouldn't fall on top of a car. Oh. Well in case oh. you are unaware, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am here as always with Chris Gill and Don Thea. From the Department of Zoology. From the Department of Bears. And uh, in the godly studio, but I am still, this is probably my last episode, which I will be taking, oh, maybe one more. I may be able We're to really going to miss you, Matt. From the other side of the pond. Yeah, I may be able to do one more in, you know, two weeks or an hour, whatever it is. Or not. From what old it, Blighty. Whatever it is. Anyway, so it's Summer Institute time at, at the uh, Population Health Exchange, isn't it? It is. Am I right about that? So anyway, they got a lot going on there. But if you uh, if you missed out on that, you can still check out all the great things going on at the Population Health Exchange at www.pophealthex.org, our resource hub for lifelong learning. And also, uh, if you could go give us a, a rating on iTunes, we would really appreciate with re- that. With a review, nobody has put in a review since February. In five stars, we're please. feeling uh, we're feeling ignored. Are you, Chris? Are you doing Mr. Sub- Subliminal there? Five stars, five stars. Anything you want to give us, five stars, five stars. Have we not offered anything in a while? I think that's why. We get uh, get ratings when we offer things to people. Anyway. Maybe we should offer umbrellas. Hmm. Great idea. Don't know why, but it sounds like like a great idea. Well, so now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at uh, one that's big news in our world. It's a study of HIV transmission among people who have been successfully treated for HIV. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about what we mean when we talk about risk factors. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, uh, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud, or I will just whine about the size of my wine glass. That was clever, right? I'm getting nothing from you guys. (laughs) Complete dead silence. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of HIV treatment effective HIV treatment on transmission of the HIV virus. Uh, It was published in the journal The Lancet, and it was entitled Risk of HIV Transmission Through Condomless Sex in Serodifferent Gay Couples with the HIV-Positive Partner Taking Suppressive Antiretroviral Therapy. 
That is a mouthful, and I'm not even done yet. So that's the partner study, final results of a multi-center prospective observational study. That's got to be one of the longest titles I've read in a while. Uh, it's by Allison J. Roger from the Institute of Global Health right here in merry old England in London, the University College of London. And as I said, this was a, this is a real big deal in the HIV world. So here are some of the headlines. So the medical news says, stop the stigma. HIV transmission with suppressive ART is zero. CNN says treatment eliminates risk of passing on HIV. Uh, National Global News says antiretroviral drugs stop HIV transmission study shows, but can people afford them? Which I thought was an interesting question to add on at the end. Uh, then Yahoo News says landmark HIV study finds that treatment lowers virus spread to near zero. So Don, in fact, what, zero. What's that? And in fact, zero. Yeah. So... Don, what, what, tell us what this study was about, and if you can, why it was such a big deal. Yeah, th- th- this, this, this really was an important study. Th- th- this, ha- this study has and will have major impact on public health programs to interrupt transmission of HIV. And it was, it's important to understand that this was the second part of a, of a study that had previously been published that went a long way but didn't go the complete distance to proving the fundamental point that's outlined in this paper. The first the first study that I alluded to, which this was an extension of, was a study called Partner One. And it was essentially the the the, the same investigators and the same population. And, and what that study did was to look at the likelihood of transmission among a combination of heterosexual and gay discordant or differently um, infected individuals, where one is infected and the other one is not infected. And in that study, they found that there was no, quote, linked transmission, and I'll come back to that in, in, in a minute, in 888 couples, 548 of which were heterosexual and 340 of which were gay discordant couples. And that was in a population that was relatively small for them to be able to determine whether um, the effect was what they would like it to be, i.e. very low or zero transmissions in the gay population. So building upon that, they designed to this study, which basically extended the observations of partner one amongst those, the, the, the gay couples, and then enrolled a subsequent cohort on top of that at a somewhat later, later date in a similar fashion to really extend the observation and try to um, have sufficient power to be able to make these observations with high rigor in a gay population. So partner two is an observational multicenter study of zero different individuals in, in, in gay relationships who had previously not been, been, not been using condoms, been having condomless sex who were um, having or in a relationship with a partner who was HIV positive, who was on ARVs, and whose viral load was essentially below the level of detection. So they were fully suppressed. This occurred at 75 sites in 14 European countries, and they were followed up for a period of time. I think on average it was one to two years. I think the median was maybe two years. Two years. Yep, it was yeah. two years. And that once they were enrolled, there were visits, um, there was a baseline visit, and then there was a visit every four to six months. And the individuals in the, in the cohort self-reported on sociodemographics, adherence to ART, frequency and type of sex between the partners since the last visit, symptoms and any diagnoses of STIs or sexually transmitted infections, whether 
PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis or post-exposure prophylaxis, was used. That is using antiretrovirals in anticipation of having an episode of condomless sex or taking antiretrovirals if you were the HIV uninfected partner and you've had sex with somebody whose status is known to be positive or unknown, taking antiretrovirals afterwards. So the HIV negative partners were also asked if they had condomless sex with anyone else outside of the relationship during the the prior interval. And the HIV partner had to be on an ART regimen. The CD4 counts were recorded, as well as the current and recent viral loads. And the HIV negative partner was tested at each visit. And if the HIV uninfected partner developed an incident HIV infection in the interim, that virus was then harvested and it was subject to extensive phylogenetic analysis to essentially establish whether, in fact, the virus that was newly infecting the H- previously HIV-negative partner was the same virus that was infecting the HIV-positive partner in that relationship because there were episodes of people having sex with um, others outside the relationship. And that was, I think, one of the real strengths of this study was that it was able to say that of those events, of those infections that occurred under the period of observation for these couples, they were able to say whether that infection resulted from the index partner, the HIV positive partner, about which viral load and an HIV infection status was known. So it was, it, was, it was a really important part of this. There were intervals that were deemed ineligible. So there are periods of observation during which they did not include information from that interval. And, that, and that, that, those were intervals during which the following occurred, that there was post-exposure or pre-exposure prophylaxis that was used sort of outside of, the, of the, the normal dynamics of the study, that the negative partner reported no condomless sex, that the most recent viral load was over 200. There was no viral load available in the past year. Data on sexual behavior was missing or no HIV test from the HIV negative partner. So they're really looking for all of those intervals, which which really were refined to this central dynamic of the uh, HIV-infected partner having a confirmed viral load that was below the level of detection and that there was condomless sex during the interval. So they had a a total between partner one and partner two, the two studies that were back-to-back, 972 gay couples were recruited. There was 2,072 couple years of follow-up by the end of the, of, the, of the study. There was some dropout, most of which was due to the couples breaking up. So, so they, they would not be followed any longer if the couples, the incident couples had broken up and they were no longer having sex during those subsequent intervals. There were 479 couple years that were ineligible because no condomless sex. There was 32% use of PEP or PrEP, 24%. Viral load is not available in 18%. Uh, missing data on condomless, condomless sex in 19%. So there was a smattering of different reasons why these particular intervals were deemed ineligible, um, which left about 1,600 couple of years of follow-up um, by 782 couples with meeting, as Chris said, follow-up of two years. The baseline results in terms of the two populations of individuals were pretty unremarkable. People had the HIV positive partner had been an art for a median of four years. There was incredibly high compliance and incredibly high accuracy in the reporting of the compliance. Yeah, really high. One of the things to say is that it was a pretty specialized population because it was it was a white population. It was a relatively wealthy population. I think there were relatively. 
few non-whites and there were relatively few IV drug users. During the period of observation, about 27% of the population got a sexually transmitted infection, and that, 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 that actually is, is fairly important. 37% of individuals had condomless, um, of the HIV uninfected individuals had condomless sex with another HIV positive partner, and there were about 43 condomless sex acts per year, and they observed essentially 76,000 condomless sex acts in the entire population. And the bottom line is that there were 15 HIV negative partners who became infected from this population, none of which were established to be from the HIV positive partner based on a phylogenetic comparison. Zero. Zero. None. None. Nada. So there were six additional conversions which occurred during ineligible intervals. So those actually could have been conversions or infections that had occurred as a result, but we just don't know. And the authors chose to remove them from the analysis, which I think is the conservative thing to do. So that that zero has a little bit of uncertainty around it. But the bottom line is that they determined that they estimated that there was about one zero conversion event for every 435 years of condomless sex in this gay population, which is really remarkable. Unbelievable. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. And, yeah, and, very and impressive. It, it really supports the whole contention that if you are undetectable, you are uninfectable or uninfectable. So a major, major take-home message for the public health effort to really decrease transmission populations. Yeah, totally yeah I mean, a, a really impressive demonstration of the fact that if you are HIV positive, you are taking your medication and it's effective, meaning that you are adherent and it is suppressing the virus. We cannot detect it in your blood. There is virtually no transmission that can occur to uninfected partners. And this follows on from some previous studies, one of which was the, the landmark HPTN052 study, which had shown essentially the same thing in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Well, actually, it was, it was all over. And it found a 97% reduction in transmission before they had actually ruled out any unlinked transmission. So this is, I mean, this is... But, the, but that study had only 2% MSMs. So yeah. it really, so this could, a, you could this not extrapolate to that population. Absolutely. Right. And we, we should emphasize that, that in, in epidemiologic studies that have looked at the, the, the force of infection risk based on mode of contact, that, that uh, unprotected receptive anal sex is the, highest. Is the highest risk of all sexual exposures. Absolutely. Other than... Uh, drug injection, presumably. Right, but that's not a sexual like exposure. Sexual, but oh, yes. sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. So, yeah. So, Chris, give us your take on the study. But in particular, I want you to just think about the fact that this, unlike every other study that we have looked at, did not have a comparison group. <laughs> and uh, I'm curious your thoughts as to why they didn't have a comparison group here, and but also your just your general take on this study. Yeah, sure. So I'll, maybe I'll start with the the addressing your question, uh, Matt. Uh, so they did mention this somewhere. It was either in the intro of the discussion. I don't exactly remember where, but they 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 do have a base case against which they can compare because we have had you know decades essentially of a natural history cohort of what happens when there is un 
controlled HIV viremia and the consequence of that in terms of sexual transmission within couples. And, you know, so they, they their, their base case scenario, which they're comparing about is that you would have expected if these were individuals were not undetectable, that the transmission rate would have been around 50%, just, just slightly lower than 50%, but, you know, we can say approximately 50%. And so they were, they would have predicted from this cohort that instead of zero transmissions, there should have been around, you know, just shy of 300 transmissions. And so it, it felt like, you know, here, the, the really, you didn't need a control arm. I mean, we mm-hmm. talked about selection biases and why, you know, randomization is important. But, but all of that is, I, I think, generally because we fear, you know, selection biases that may be, you know, important, but on a relatively subtle scale, like maybe it skews you five, ten percent one way or the other. But but here, the magnitude of the base case is just so extraordinary that to have a zero transmission rate. I mean, I think that, you know, you don't need to be the, the, the evidence is pretty darn persuasive. I mean, make, let's let's be clear here. Yeah, but I I, I think I think there's still a there, there, there's sort of a, a quirk to that particular observation. And and, and the, one of the things that struck me about this was that they had 19 couple years that were deemed ineligible. But they determined that the viral load was above the 200 threshold, and the range was 202 to 170,000 in those 19 couple years of follow-up. So these are intervals where there was a detectable viral load, and they there were 810 sex acts, but no transmissions during that period of time. Now, that may be due to small numbers, or it could be due to some residual effect of having drug on board. Yeah despite the fact that you're not fully suppressive. So there may be some kind of halo effect right. that could be occurring in addition to that. Right. I mean, you know, mechanistically, why would we expect it to be an all or nothing affair? Right. Yeah. It could be that these are non-viable viruses because they're swimming in a pool of antiretrovirals. So, you know, even though they're there, they can be measured by PCR. They're not infectious. Right. And and some some of this may also be virus that's, that's nested within lymphocytes and it's not free virus. Correct. So there are a lot right. of reasons for that. Right. But also, presumably, the the, the, the actual absolute magnitude of your viremia is, is, is critically important. It's like there's a heck of a difference between 400 copies per mil and 4 million copies per right. mil in terms no, of the, your contagiousness. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So I, I had a couple thoughts well, wait, about be, this be, study. Before, you, before but, you do that, can I just yeah. speak to the to the control arm issue, which is that I you know I hear you and what you're saying, and I actually in the end I actually do agree with you. Although I would say that the reason we have the control arm is because you know it's possible that things go differently from our expectation, and it could be that nobody in this population is actually having condomless sex despite what they're telling us. And so the comparison arm would be there to tell us that actually we're not seeing any transmission in the arm that isn't taking suppressive therapy. But 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 where I agree with you is here, I think the point is that the magnitude of the effect, the, the expectation is no transmissions or very few transmissions in the arm that is suppressive. And so what we're really trying to do, as they say, is they're trying to get a, a confidence interval around zero. Yeah. Um, which is, is neat. It's something I've not seen before. Yeah, I, I, I would love it if we could loop back to that issue about the confidence interval because yep. that yep. that is uh, for for you know for, from an epidemiologist perspective is interesting. But yeah, but I, I also it's wanted nerd to, candy. It's nerd <laughs> candy. Yeah, but but um, there's a huge issue of ethics here, right? I mean, one oh, yeah. couldn't really you know we uh, cannot sorry, claim was, clinical equipoise that you know I, I was not arguing for a trial. I yeah, was not no, no, this it would be, would have it would to be, be impossible to do this as a randomized control trial, you know, for no, 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 obvious no, never, reasons. never, never, never. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Chris, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no. So, but the, 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 there was an interesting internal control, and this was one of the points I wanted to raise, which was the very high rate of of STIs right. within this it's amazing within this couple. So obviously, 
I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I say that obviously, but maybe I mean too bold, but the, the high, they was something like 23, 24%, some roughly a quarter of, of the seronegative 27%, partners, 27% uh, acquired gonorrhea, syphilis, herpes, chlamydia. or chlamydia during the study. And so that yeah. tells you that there's probably almost certainly uh, condomless, sex. condomless sex going on in the couple and outside of the couple because other diseases are entering to the, these, these are not, you know, in many cases, obviously they're not mute, you know, monogamous yeah. because they're having sexual contacts. In fact, a lot of that was documented in the study that they, they, they said that there was quite a high rate of, of extra couple sexual contact, but the high rate of STIs would suggest that this is in fact, maybe an underestimate of what people were admitting well, to in the trial. So, so, so it could be right. You're right. Although it could be that having sex outside the couple is actually a riskier, no, sorry, less risky event than having sex within the couple because you know that the person in the couple is uh, is HIV positive and the person outside could be HIV negative. But the point here is that because the transmission is effectively zero, it's actually riskier probably outside the, 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 the partnership than inside the partnership. Right. And that was one of the interesting things that came out of the study, that the, the few, the 15 infections that did occur were not genetically linked to the 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 HIV positive partners, HIV strains. So these were strains of HIV that clearly came from extra couple contacts. I think the other interesting aspect of the STIs is that we know that the presence of a sexually transmitted infection potentiates the transmission. And the fact that we didn't, even in the setting of all of this, all of these intervals that had, during which an STI was active, we still didn't see any transmissions. Even in that group is, I think, persuasive. Yeah, I agree. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're quite right. Yeah. I think it's I think it's I think it's incredibly uh strong evidence that undetectable equals untransmissible. But I, I do so I do want to go back to that point, which is as you pointed out several times, Don, they excluded time periods when the infected partner did not have a suppressed virus, meaning right. you could detect HIV in the in the blood. And that is either because one of two things presumably is going on, either they're not taking their medications consistently or they've become resistant to the treatment that they're on. And so they excluded that. And the reason they excluded that is here what they're specifically trying to do is estimate what's the probability of transmission if you are suppressed. Right. But that means that these results you have to be really clear, only correspond to time periods when the infected partner is suppressed. Right. There's a lot and of ifs so, here. Yeah. And so that's really important. Now, you know, HIV treatment is is very effective. And so if you're taking your, your treatment consistently, the majority of people are, are going to have a suppressed virus the majority of the time. So this is, you know, it's, it's a, an effective treatment. It's going to work most of the time, but it is important to, to stitch that caveat into this. Right. So when, 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 the, when we talk about undetectable equals uninfectious, we have to be really careful that we're not saying on treatment equals uninfectious. Exactly. That is not the same. The two are not synonymous. And I think it's really important to stress the fact that you have to presume that it's going to take at least six months once you initiate antiretrovirals for you to become undetectable. Yeah. So people who are newly initiating on, on treatment absolutely need to either abstain or have condom full sex 
Spare condoms. Not a word. Condom for sex. My, my, my spell checker doesn't like condom lists. It definitely would not like condom full. Uh, w- one other thing I wanted to, I, I, you know, highlight in this is that th- this issue about uh, achieving undetectability of, of, of HIV and, and as, you know, having this be a, a key part of our, our strategy in controlling the HIV pandemic, you know, is, is that is, is this... Is treatment alone going to get us out of the HIV/AIDS crisis? And I, and I think I think no. there's still there's still a lot of debate about this issue. And and one of the things that they mentioned here it's kind of a subtle point, but I think is worth mentioning is is Matt is it still there? I'm shaking my head. No, he's not here. He's he's left. Is that the the average age of the of the men in this cohort was about 38 years? Right. Yeah. And the average age of men who become infected with HIV is 25 years. Right. So the, the, you know that is a huge caveat. This is a 12 year delta from the time that HIV was on average acquired, and and so this is is not really a strategy necessarily that's going to control HIV transmissions in the population at large. We're really just talking about monogamous couples in whom one member is positive, who is faithful to their HIV, and uh, has achieved undetectable viral load. I would, I would absolutely agree with that. I would yeah. also say that, uh, you know, we think that a, well, we know that some proportion of all transmissions occur before the person ever goes on to HIV treatment. It's possible that there is a sizable chunk of that is actually happening during the period just after their transmission. That's right. So, uh, the period that they become infected. We don't really know that as well as we probably should. Right. And so, you know, this this only only deals with the, the time period from after which you have gotten onto treatment. And as Don says, you pass the period at which you are unsuppressed. So it doesn't, it doesn't, we're not going to be able to treat our way alone out of this epidemic, but it right. is a really important piece right. in the, in the, in the, in the toolkit that we have. Right. It, 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 it emphasizes the absolute criticality of suppressing the viral load uh, as a tool at a population level for reducing transmissions. But it also, um, I think, steers us back to the, the importance of PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, in fact, on, on the drive in this morning, I was listening to sort of catching up on my daily podcasts, and they were talking about, you know, the sort of uh, pivotal uh, PrEP study that had been done in the United States sponsored by um, uh, NIH with drug donated, Truvada donated by Gilead a number of years ago that showed a profound reduction in transmissions if you use PrEP. And in fact, if we can plug another podcast, I think this episode was really interesting because it, it was not just about like, wow, you know, we have this this tool, and yet we are not using it because there's there's apparently about a million individuals in the United States alone for whom pre-exposure prophylaxis would be warranted, and only about 250,000 or so are actually taking PrEP. And, and a big barrier to that, unfortunately, and this is a bit cynical, has been the very high cost of drugs driven by the the, the drug company Gilead that is making this. Apparently, it, it, this came out in the, in the pod, so I can state this is now public domain knowledge, but it costs $60 per course to manufacture Truvada and they are selling it for $20,000. Mm, $60 actual $20,000 market upgrade. What was the podcast? This is the daily podcast put the up by the New York Times. Right. Yeah, it's oh, it's very a depressing podcast. story. And it, it is basically clear that it is it is, you know, the high cost of Truvada is the is the key barrier that's stopping this this very effective strategy from being rolled out more more generally. Alas, that's amazing. And alas. to be clear that if I had Michael Barbaro's voice, we would be the number one podcast. <laughs> I was out thinking there. the opposite. He just oh. we they they we need to upgrade to the the Matt Fox velvet. Oh, I got tones. it. <laughs> so so before we leave this study, I I don't want to let this one go. I mean, so we haven't really totally critiqued it because so so this is not a 
so, so as we said, they're just trying to estimate a rate here of transmission. So there's no comparison, which means there's no confounding problems, right? You just have one arm. You don't have anything that is potentially confounding. But I do wonder about issues of selection and issues of measurement, which are the two things that could still, you know, potentially screw up the the estimation of that rate. Measurement, I don't think, uh, probably not a huge issue. I, I suppose you could Specifically be, measurement of what are you referring to? Everything. I mean, measuring the outcome, so measuring HIV, probably pretty good. Measuring a condomless sex Yes, yeah, that would be the that would be the hard one. Might not be so great, so we don't necessarily know that, but it's probably not going to be a big deal. I do wonder about selection, though, because there was a fair bit of dropout in this study. So it was twenty five per one hundred couple years of follow up. If I got mm-hmm, it right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's high. Much of that was couple breakup, right? right? So this is it's not because you know they just lost interest in being in the study; or they were more likely to be at risk. It's the realities of doing a couple study, they they. They are no longer in a partnership. You can't continue to study that group. So I'm, I think it probably doesn't really matter, but I, th- I just think it's worth highlighting. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, of course, eternally difficult to measure is, is adherence, particularly by self-report. But here, but I guess it would- But didn't they confirm that? Didn't they, didn't they confirm that comparing a, a stated adherence with viral load suppression, that there was a very high level of adherence and that well, it, well, in this case, underscored it was, the, the, you know, the veracity of what they were saying. In, in this case, I think it, it, was, it, it was almost circular because one of the inclusion criteria exactly. is that they had to be undetectable. So, but it, they had to sustain that also. But they had to sustain that. But you know, once, once you have sufficient adherence to become undetectable, it's likely that your adherence is going to remain fairly well, constant over time. Hang on, but they, it, they excluded it the, the time bit, periods when they were not they were not suppressed. So I'm not sure it's relevant. So it becomes a moot point. Just yeah. it's, a, it's not a moot point, but a definitional issue. A definite, right? Exactly. Right. right. They took them out as uh, from removed them from the denominator of time at risk. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 All right. Any any last thoughts on this one before we move on from what was I think is a really important article? Yeah, I, I was just struck by a sentence that was written in the conclusion at the end of the study, which um, I think underscored sort of where we are with respect to this issue. And I said, despite all the concerns about potential risks, there has not been a single verified case of HIV transmission in the context of complete virally suppressive ART reported in the literature. You got to take that with a grain of salt, but that's a pretty, that's a a pretty bold statement for the authors to make. And, uh, you know, I think I, I don't disagree with it necessarily. Yeah, what was it about 2000, I don't know, 2009, 10, 11 somewhere in there that the Swiss statement came out which said essentially that that they believed these these doctors believed that if you were mm-hmm. undetectable you were you could not transmit and it's it's taken until well the HPTN052 study was 2014, mm-hmm. 13, 12, I can't remember when exactly that was. And now we have more and more evidence to to say that this is this is this is correct, which mm-hmm. is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's really really amazing. Yeah, the other thing that I thought was impressive was that they 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 closed the study down in April of 2018, and then when was this published? Yeah. Very shortly thereafter, which I is, yeah, you know is so, something so to important. commend the authors to get this really important public health message out. All right, let's move on to our second segment where we are going to talk about an article, and this may seem a little strange that for our second topic we are going to talk about an article from the BNJ Christmas edition from back in 2016. And the article was entitled, 
Is Caviar a Risk Factor for Being a Millionaire by Anders Hutvelt? And, you know, it's it's a article that comes from the BMJ Christmas edition. So obviously it's a tongue-in-cheek type article, but it is actually a serious article that makes a fantastic point. And the way that I came across this was people throwing this at me on Twitter, uh, including uh, it was uh, Anders is on Twitter and, and chimed in a bit on this when I asked the question, what do people actually mean when they use the word risk factor? Mm-hmm. So when people use the word risk factor, are they talking about causal? Are they talking about just prediction, association? What are we talking about? And I brought it up on Twitter because this is a question that whenever uh, I'm teaching uh, and a student will say something is a risk factor, I always say, stop and say, okay, what do you mean by that? And I don't mean it in a in a uh, an accusatory way. I'm not sure I ever know what I mean when I use this term. Mm-hmm. So he tries to make this point that, well, so I didn't know this, that the, the term risk factor actually came out in the 1960s right here, right there, where you guys are in in Massachusetts through the Framingham Heart Study. And it immediately became a very unclear concept as to what we meant when we talked about risk factors. So so Anders talks about essentially four different ways we can think about what a risk factor might be. So he talks about diagnosis, prediction, treatment, and etiology. So diagnosis meaning we want to predict what's actually happened past, you know, essentially past tense or present tense. Prediction, where we want to predict the future, what will happen. Treatment or an intervention, so the idea of what will happen if we intervene to change the situation. And etiology, what are the causal relationships that govern the associations? Yeah, and I I think, Matt, it behooves us to, because I think this was such a witty and clever article, to actually go through the caviar millionaire analysis and summarize each of those points. Go for it. Starting with diagnosis, what is the relative risk of uh, being a millionaire if you are seen eating caviar? So you can do that two by two. You have the people who eat caviar, don't eat caviar, and the people who are millionaires and who aren't millionaires. Sorry, which, 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 cell, which cell are you in, Chris? Uh, I am in the non-caviar, non-millionaire cell. That would be cell D for deficient. <laughs> Whereas A would be aspirational. <laughs> right. Ah, got it. Is that what those stand for? I never knew. I never knew. So, yeah. So, you know, you can calculate a relative risk and you'd find that. And I'm sure it's probably true that the relative risk is huge for, for being a millionaire if you were a caviar eater. But, but that is separate from whether eating caviar will make you into a millionaire. Or a prior millionaire because you've eaten too much caviar. Exactly. And so then you go into the prognostic, right? Which is like, if I eat caviar now... Will I, you know, and consistently in the future, will that help me become a millionaire in the future? Uh, and so that's through a very, what, through what <laughs> mechanism? Wait, 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 exactly. Wait, 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 wait. Now Sorry, we get into the whole issue of biological plausibility and cause loops. <laughs> but that's hang on. That that would be an intervention. Uh, oh, that that would be a randomized trial. But I think the, yeah, he was yeah, talking that, about prognosis as like a, a cohort study. Like you know, if, if, what is the future of caviar eaters versus non-caviar eaters as opposed to what is the association today? If you no, no, well, so the difference would be if you see somebody eating caviar who is not currently a millionaire. Right. Will they become a millionaire? Will they become one? Right. And then if that looks good, so now we've gone from case control study to cohort study. Now we're going into the experimental study 
we're going to say we're going to randomize people to caviar versus no caviar and see how many millionaires result within the next five years. (laughs) Only only those who own the caviar company. Right. Exactly. And here he talks about like, you know, if this was, you know, if this was a uh, a, like a non-sponsored study and the people had to buy their own caviar, then you might see an inverse relationship that eating caviar is going to bankrupt you and not make you into a millionaire. So clever. Just so so clever. clever. And then the last one is the ideologic fraction, which is like assuming there's a relationship, what proportion of millionairehood can be attributed to caviar consumption <laughs> as opposed to other forces? <laughs> and the, and the, the funny part of this is that every one of those can be expressed as a relative risk. Right. <laughs> or but, a risk factor. But yet they're totally dissimilar. It's so clever. I loved this, this paper. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was fantastic. And I, I, well, I would disagree with you about the, the designs of the study. Everything else I would agree with you on there. And, and the, so the, the, the point that it makes for me Because it might is, matter the kind of caviar you eat, too. Obviously, I think that's I think we all know that that is true. But uh, if 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 you hear somebody talking about something as a risk factor for something else, smoking is a risk factor for lung cancer. Do you know what they're talking about? No, I don't. And, and you know, especially after reading this article, especially after reading this, because it occurs to me that lung cancer is a risk factor for smoking. Well, so right. If you were to, if you were to do it in the predictive sense or the diagnostic sense, yeah, I would I would right. I would. Or a kayak, that would be true. Or a kayak on top of your Subaru is a risk factor for vegetarianism. Exactly. <laughs> vegetarianism is a risk factor for kayaks, apparently. <laughs> okay. So then, so then I would ask the question. <laughs> Both of them are equally uh, ridiculous. And that is the point. <laughs> and yet we see such papers published all the time with a hint of irony <laughs> or maybe self-awareness. <laughs> okay. So, so when, you, when you see this language in, you know, when, when people talk to me and use the language risk factor, I'm not totally clear on what they're talking about. How about when you read a study? Can you tell what, what they're trying to get at when they use the term risk factor? Whether they're talking about, you know, because now you have the context of at least the study. Usually not. Uh, yeah, I have to go back and uh, rethink that based on uh, based on the way he, this has been etched out. I mean, I'm, I'm also feeling very self conscious right now <laughs> because you use the term. <laughs> so I suspect that I'm as guilty as the rest. <laughs> I suspect I am too. I am too. But you know what I think? What I think makes this worse is the fact that we hide behind associational language in publications. So we are very shy about ever using the word causation because. We have been trained that, you know, unless you've done the perfect randomized trial, you can't easily assess causation from observational data. So I will just I'll use the word association. Well, to me, association is just as bad as risk factor, because what I don't know is what was your intention? Yeah. And if we started off study, so I'm 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 totally fine with the idea that we refer to the effects, sorry, the uh, uh, measures that we get from our epidemiologic studies as measures of association. That's fine by me. But what I want to know is in the introduction, in the, in the method section, what are you intending to measure? Mm -hmm. Are you intending to measure an, an association or an effect? If you're intending to measure an effect, then and then so I'm stated. expecting a certain yeah, and I'm expecting a certain set of procedures that it will at least try to get me close to causation. If you're trying to get at prediction, then make it clear to me why you're adjusting for all of these things. When you know, for prediction, I just need to know is that variable associated with that outcome? 
if I want to use it for prediction. And then people say, well, we adjusted for all these other things. Well, if it's just prediction, why? And it's it's it becomes really difficult. You, you should explain that point understand. a little bit further because that that's a it's that's a bit of a subtlety, and it's pretty fundamental too. Yeah, yeah. So so if you want to know whether or not carrying a pack of matches is going to predict, let's say, lung cancer, we would expect that if you're carrying a pack of matches, that your chances of developing lung cancer sometime in the future are higher than for people who don't carry a pack of matches. That is completely confounded by the fact that people who are carrying matches are more likely to be smokers. But if I'm looking at prediction, I don't want to adjust for smoking. I just want to know, is asking people whether or not they carry a pack of matches a good predictor of the outcome? Right. If I adjust for smoking, then that association is going to go away. And you would say, well, then carrying a pack of matches doesn't tell me anything. It, it right. ceases well, to function as a, useful, as a useful screening question. Because, yeah, because so you don't, you don't want to adjust for right. confounders if what you're getting at is prediction, unless you have some complex prediction algorithm you're trying to build. But then, you know, my second question then becomes, what are you going to do with this? Right. But, you know, those are two separate goals, both important, assessing causation and trying to predict the future are two important goals, but they have different methods behind them. Right. Let's be clear about what we're trying to do is what I'm, I'm arguing for. It's, it's not exactly the same thing, but it struck me is that the, the paper that we reviewed a couple of sessions ago that was talking about, I think it was marijuana and psychosis, that they had, they had sort of wandered into this area of etiologic fraction when the study had initially started out as, as uh, trying to, I guess, uh, diagnose Schizophrenia, where it was a no, it was a prediction. Right, but they had done. They were, they were trying to say how much how much psychosis would be removed from the population if nobody was consuming marijuana. Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. And yet the, the original study design had was a cohort study. And so it, it, I, I'm wondering now if if this is an example of where those distinctions blurred a little bit in the analysis. Well, I, yes and no. I mean, you, you, I think what you're trying to say there is it was a cohort study, therefore they couldn't assess cause and effect. I would disagree with that. So I would say you can get at causal measures from observational data, but you have to you have to be really careful and do it really well. But I, I take your point. I mean, I think they were veering into an area that they were not, that they couldn't really support. Yep. Yep. And so the the last point I want to make on this is um, the other place where this seems to me there is inherent contradiction, and I think Anders makes this point as well, is is you will see studies that will say association, association, association. You'll get to the limitations, and they'll say, uh, you know, it's observational data, and we have these problems, so we can't can't say causation. And then they'll tell you the policy implications. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah. How can we get policy implications if we're not looking at causation? Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could if you were really saying this is prediction and here's what you could do with it. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying, you know, essentially, I'm going to tell you that none of this is causal. And then I'm going to tell you why we should actually act on this and it must be causal. Right. It, and and it then seems this, this me, is where, like, you know, let's let's uh, pass a new ordinance in the city of New York to take out salt from foods at all restaurants uh, is going beyond the association and straight to assumptions about causation. And maybe it's true, yeah. maybe it isn't, but you know, it was a bold leap to go from the epi without showing, you know, with any randomized controlled trial data suggesting that high salt versus low salt actually changes cardiovascular outcomes. In fact, the only randomized controlled trial I'm aware that has looked at salt as a, as a risk factor, as an, as an intervention, manipulating salt as an intervention to change cardiovascular outcomes actually showed an increase in cardiovascular outcomes when they reduce salt. Yeah. So like, you know, here we are, we are way off the range, I think. 
I think you're right. I think you're right. All right. Any other any other comments on this one before we move on? No, thoroughly enjoyable paper. Yeah, so funny. Yeah. So well done. So well done. And I what I love about it is it is a paper that makes a really, really important and clever point and does it in a funny way. And I think that actually gets people to read it and pay attention to it. So well done. Yeah. Well done, Anders. It's a, it's Good a job, BMJ. Well, well, well played. It was a, it was a well Christmas done, issue too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the prerogative and go first on this one, and because mine is a is a pretty short one. It was just something that I came across on Twitter that just made me made me giggle, and it was a tweet by a guy named Mark Van Gotham. Gotham. I don't know how you pronounce his name. And his tweet reads: "Trying to be an adult." And read a scientific paper and your wife does this. And then he shows a picture, a picture of the paper that he's trying to read in which the title of the article is The Influence of Climactic Legacies on the Distribution of Dryland Biocrust Communities. And before the title... Biocrust well, Communities? Yes. I don't know why you're laughing at that. That was the, like, that that? the funny part. All right. That's the serious article okay. title. The influence of climactic legacies. Anyway, and his wife has written before the beginning of the title, Harry Potter and the influence of climactic <laughs> legacies. I love it. I love it. That's keep awesome. it, and it keep occurs it real. to me that you can, you can do this for so many articles. Really? Because of the way we write our titles. But it turned out, I, so I went and looked at our articles. So I looked at the three of us and... Don, you and I don't actually ours don't actually work quite as well. Partly because they're about HIV, and so it doesn't it just doesn't come across as well. But Chris, yours actually a few of yours worked well. Oh. Uh, Harry, Harry Potter and the effect of training traditional birth attendants. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter and the persistence of immune response. <laughs> And Harry Potter and the impact of enhanced infection control. I love it. That's good. It's you had good. no idea, Chris. It goes to the Hogwarts bathroom, which as I recall is a very dangerous place. <laughs> <laughs> now we know you should use alcohol-based hand wash. There you <laughs> go. Keep away basilisks uh, and more. <laughs> All right, Chris, what do you got? All right, well, I would like to note that all three of us do a lot of work in Southern Africa. And so this is this is a topic that the three of us will find charming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just got back from there. So Don- As did I. Uh, Matt, right. We, 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 what, what is one of your favorite alcoholic beverages that you you associate with Southern Africa? Mosi. Why? Uh, Gin and tonic. Uh, That's where yeah, you're okay, going. Okay, okay. Yeah, was, uh, think, think elephants. Amarula. Think big, there we Tusker. go. Tusker. What was it? Amarula. Amarula. Okay, so why why does the Amarula bottle... Okay, I should explain to our readers. Amarula (laughs) is this this yummy... Like, Don hates it. Okay, but I I love it. It's this yummy cream liqueur that is very similar to Bailey's Irish cream, kind of mixed with juicy fruit gum. I think uh, that's sort of the best description uh, I can. And it's, uh, <laughs> and it's based on the fermentation of this this fruit that lives in Southern Africa called the marula fruit, which is like little little kind of hard uh, things with a thick that taste kind of orangey. They're very citrusy and very acid, and they're also sweet, and they're delicious. And the, the reason why they have the elephant on the label, do you either of you know? No. Okay. Because they they fall to the ground, they ferment, the elephants eat them, and they get drunk. This is true. Well, this is this is the story. It, it may be somewhat apocryphal, but everybody says that this is true. But it is undeniable that elephants love marula fruits. Now, there are two other organisms on the earth that really love marula fruits. Okay. What are those? What are they? One, you guys uh, can guess. Other, uh, so, uh, uh, baboons. Think 
think taller. Giraffes? Giraffes. No, no, stick with baboons. Think taller and smarter. Oh. Apes. Yes. Gorillas. Us. Us. Uh, uh, humans. <laughs> humans really dig. Neanderthals. Humans really dig Marilla foods. Okay. So okay, we, yeah. we eat truckloads right. of them. Okay. And there's a third one, which has got six legs. Speak for yourself. I hate Marillas. Six legs. Six legs uh, and, and little tiny paired wings. And it is annoying. And they fly around our office. And they also fly around your kitchen around July. Moths. Tiny, tiny, tiny. Moths. Mosquitoes. Tiny. Gnats. Oh, tiny, tiny. gnats. And they like Fruit Marillas. Flies? What is this? Jeopardy? Fruit, Fruit flies. Bingo. Drosophila melanogaster. Love marula fruits. Now, th- where, where is, is this I going? Say, I, did <laughs> enjoy, I did not enjoy that quiz. Okay, so th- this, th- these are these are <laughs> these are sort of the facts upon we're basing this this uh, th- this excellent paper that was written published in Current Biology Reports under the Cell Press nomiker. This is in 2018, and the lead author was Susan Mansourian, talking about the origins, the coevolution of Drosophila melanogaster, which is the common fruit fly that drives us all nuts, and and marula fruits. Now, the funny thing about Drosophila melanogaster, the fruit fly, is that anyone who's got like, you know, apples or bananas or grapes that they keep in their kitchen is going to have fruit flies everywhere driving them bonkers in the middle of the summer. But you cannot, even though these things are are, are, are ubiquitous, and by the way, are the, are the most studied organism in terms of genetics on the planet by far, even though these things are ubiquitous, the they cannot be found anywhere in the wild except for one place which is Marula forests in the, in the <laughs> Maponi uh, forests in Southern Africa, in Zambia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. Now, and it, so how it turns out is that the, the fruit flies had originated living in these Maponi forests where there were all these Marula fruits. And these fruit flies have, have evolved to coexist with Marula fruits specifically, and they have you know, very interesting genetic mutations that make them hypersensitive and attracted to the specific volatile compounds that are emitted by rotting marula fruits. Now, the other thing that's really interesting is that those that, that second group of, of organisms that really likes marula fruits is human beings. And so there are caves in these areas, limestone caves, and this is the, you know considered to be the, the you know the, the basket of humanity is what they, they build themselves as, where you go back into the de- recesses of these caves, and one of these caves contained, I kid you not, approximately 24 million marula pits. So the people who, who lived in them caves really liked marula fruits. <laughs> sure sort of did. like my easy chair and pistachio shells. Exactly, or popcorn, <laughs> right? So you can kind of imagine prehistoric Zimbabwean man sitting oh, there yeah, digging their marulas. 24, 24 million pits in one cave alone. Wow. Um, and they just like toss them to the back of the cave. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you can imagine that there were probably one or two fruit flies back there as well. <laughs> So it, it now appears that this was the point where the fruit flies and human beings became commensal. Oh it's God. through the, the the mutual adoration Love. of the marula fruit. And that as humans really? then disseminated, oh. bringing their fruit-loving behaviors with them around the world, the fruit flies co-evolved with humans God. and are now almost exclusively found amongst humans and never in the wild, except still in the Maponi Forest in South Africa. It's huh. just like, it was such a cool story. <laughs> That's wild. Isn't that amazing? And they're even at Hogwarts. And they're even at Hogwarts. I, Those fruit flies are just annoying. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna just go out and say that I did not know that that was going anywhere. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> but now you're relieved. I'm thrilled you got somewhere with it. Thank you. Well done. Thanks. Thanks. All right, Don. What do you got? All right. So uh, I have a shout out for one of my students from last semester, Esther Ray, who um, sent this article to me, and I, it was one of the most enjoyable articles I've read in a long time. Very, very topical. It is an original contribution that appeared in uh, Injury Epidemiology, a journal I'm sure Matt you subscribe to on a regular basis. I read it every day. By I'm also featured in it. Ryder Lystad and Benjamin T. Brown, and the title is "Death Is Certain, The Time Is Not: Mortality mm-hmm. and Survival in Game of Thrones." <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so what they did? These two authors went out yep. and bought the full seven-season DVD compilation of Game of Thrones. Without the last episodes, they don't know what happened with the last episode, and I'm sure all of our listeners know exactly what happened in the last episode. They, I don't. They went through all of those those episodes, and they counted everybody that died. So it's like a giant game, survival analysis? Game of Thrones. They did a survival <laughs> analysis, and they looked at a whole bunch of risk factors <laughs> prognostic oh, death yeah. in Game of Thrones. And basically, they came up with a number of characteristics that predicted death. So of 330 characters that were included, 56% died by the end of the study period. All but two deaths were due to injury, burns, and poisoning. And what they did very clever. They went through all of the deaths and ascribed an ICD-9-10 code. Oh, that's oh, awesome. No. <laughs> they have a table that is, takes up two pages with the ICD-9 codes of things like open wound of head, SO1, infracranial injury, burns and mu- of multiple body regions, assault by drugs, medications, biological substances, um, place or occurrence, Prison, home, military camp, <laughs> street and highway, trade and service area. Then what they did is they looked at what predicted death among the characters in Game of Thrones. And the survival time ranged from 11 seconds <laughs> oh, after introduction of the character <laughs> to 57 hours. The median survival time estimated to be 28 hours. And that is of running time of the, of the series, of the series yeah. not of like real Game of Thrones time. Oh, I see. I was going to ask how they coded person time. The probability of surviving at least one hour in the show was 86%. The analyses revealed worse survival for characters who were male... Mm-hmm. That makes who sense. Who were lowborn and who had not switched allegiance during the show or mm-hmm. who had featured more prominently in the show. And they went through this analysis where they, they have social status, highborn, lowborn, type of occupation, which they stratified to a silk collar occupation or a <laughs> boiled leather collar <laughs> occupation. <laughs> so the silk collar were like priests uh, and educators. They must have had a union, those leather collar guys. I, I so imagine good. that they did. And then they, they stratified it also by religion. And unfortunately, if you were a member of Faith of the seven, your likelihood of dying was much higher than if you were a member of the Great Stallion or Lord of Light religions, <laughs> as well as the last known allegiance. And apparently, the can you guess which allegiance conferred the greatest likelihood of death? Matt, you ha- haven't really watched this show, but... Never seen the show. Anyway, if you were a Targaryen, you had the, the next to lowest level, or a Greyjoy, you had next to the lowest level. But if you were a s- member of the Stark clan, if your allegiance was with the Starks, you had over 10% likelihood of dying in the show. 
And if it switched during the show, you had a 45% chance of dying if your lesions did not switch. Wow. Wow. Why do we not think of things like this? That is so clever. I really want to be a member of the boiled leather collar. <laughs> I <laughs> think on this, on this podcast, this great you paper. are, Don. On this podcast, you are. So wait, well, so wait, 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 wait. Oh, I, I want to get back to the, the ICD-9, the ICD-10 codes, because we earlier on in the series, we learned about uh, being hit by ducks uh, as, an IC, <laughs> oh, as a new yeah, ICD-10 yeah, yeah. code. And I'm wondering if there's like a, a, a code for like, uh, you know, incinerated by dragon or uh, boiled in oil or things like that. <laughs> no, bitten or struck by dog, uh, bitten or struck by other mammal. That would There's be nothing other. in here. Are dragons duck. mammals? L- <laughs> no, they're not. Are they're, they? they're, they're, I'm sure they're reptiles. Okay, but they're hot-blooded. Yeah. There's an ICD-9 code for legal execution. Did you know that? Asphyxiation, nope. maltreatment syndromes. Wow. Other ill-defined wow. or unspecified causes of mortality. <laughs> Apparently nobody dies of old age in Game of Thrones. Oh, no, it's, it's too, they, they've got too much to do. That is awesome, Don. Thank you for I think it was you won the prize on that one. So cool. That's great. So cool. All right. Well, that's the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a topic or a study for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @profmatfox, or Chris at, at id.gill or Don at, at dthio1. Or as always, you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast. And as always, right there in the studio, Nick Guler for his tremendous and unending work of sound and editing to make us sound good. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we sincerely hope that you will download our next episode. 